welcome everyone to another uh, weekly podcast with uh, Originative. I'm Ron Green, aka Lucian Nather. And I am Glue Scabby, aka Carl Evans. <laughs> and this week, uh, we did some emergent curriculum this morning on our topic this week. We feel like we need to say some words on risk taking, uh, particularly from the standpoint of mentorship. We do a lot of talk through our, our discussions on holistic education, through building risk taking and scaffolding risk taking in, in children. But we don't often talk about it, how necessary it is from the standpoint of the mentor. Like, how do we measure out the risk taking factor and capabilities and, um, and sensitivity and tolerance for risk in the, the leaders of a holistic education platform. And so that's what we're gonna talk about here. We have uh, consistently had this conversation as an aside when people come to the certified mentorship program and we begin a relationship with them and we begin to learn about who they are. And one of those aspects of who they are is, well, what's what's your capacity to take risk? Because being in China, being in Denver, being in Costa Rica, many of our conversations were with people that were excited about the potential of the programming and the, the work that we do, but it was going to require that they were going to have to take a long trip. <laughs> one from Beirut, one from Spain, one from Finland. And so that's a certain, that's a certain investment. So we want to first give a warm shout of gratitude to the people who have taken that risk and laid down both finances and, and emotional uh, struggles to get to where they are and to invest in the, in the time and the relationship that they have with us. And also highlight what sort of patterns that we see over and over again uh, within the people that we work with and maybe the, the identifying those patterns and the people that, um, that decide not to work with us, at least yet. Well-framed. Um, you know, that, that first section um, when people are considering the, the mentorship program and we talk about all mentors, our learners, all learners, our mentors, there's areas that it's easier to identify that and to live that or, or, or shift into a living of that. There's areas that are easier than others. Um, when we talk about mentors, you know, being jack of all trades in, sort, uh, in a sort of way, then, then it's really easy, you know, in an early childhood education environment, such as um, some of the experiences that I've gone through to realize, okay, uh, yes, I'm going to work on my music. But I've also been a professional musician for a long time. And, you know, to take on uh, Crick Crack programming and begin to sing uh, folk songs and tell stories to kids it is a leap, but there's not a lot of risk there. But in terms of becoming a learner, when it comes to art as drawing or painting, in my sense, very quickly I can say, okay, I'm a learner that's a mentor that's going to be learning 
and mentoring alongside these children. And we're going to learn to draw and paint and all of those things. Um, that's fascinating. And I think that there's a childhood nature in all of us that very quickly comes to that sort of risk-taking. And it's like, oh, yeah, this is so cute. Like, all mentors are learners. All learners are mentors. Look at me. I've never been a drawer. Um, but look at me drawing. I'm learning something that I've never done before. I'm not <laughs> specialized. This is generalization. Blah, 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 blah. Okay, cool. In terms of skill set development, that can happen and it's exciting. Um, especially if you're in that sort of environment that allows it versus an environment where you are the master of math that is teaching the learners that don't know anything about math, math. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're a master of math and you're in an environment where it's pushing you to learn new approaches to math, great. You're, you're in that same skill set development sort of environment. Um, but the way that you framed the beginning of this podcast and what we want to talk about are those realms in which we don't often remember what it's like to be the learner. And so by creating environments for apprentices to experience risk-taking, that's what we want try it, have them try new things. It's all from our scope, extremely controlled, and there is no risk taking, even in in our approach to creating something that might ruffle the feathers of the government, ruffle the feathers of the parents, ruffle the feathers of the school administration. And, And if I go, you know, a little bit deeper into the layers of the onion a little bit, um, as Neruda would say, um, and get down into that, 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 that savory golden diamond in the middle. Mm-hmm. Risk-taking is not a part of the education system that we all come from. The education system that we grew up in um, for several generations now has been trying to rid risk at all costs by offering guarantees. And college degrees are the number one on that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 and jobs, security, fields of you know, professional career development, all of that that starts at such a young age is moving, like is just eliminating risk from the picture completely. And so to then be in a role where you're trying to enact moments of risk in children, yet being 20 years distance from real risk taking um, creates a paradox that is worth addressing and saying, okay, and that's what we want to talk about in today's podcast, which is where is the place of risk? What kind of risk are we talking about? Why are we even talking about that? And, and how it can be beneficial towards our further development in what I like to refer to the years of post-development. Because <laughs> there's this concept like <laughs> you reach this point of you know young adulthood in which post-development has already taken place and you're kind of done. I'm formed. Right? And, uh, look at me, I'm formed. I'm 18. Yeah, so, and so risk-taking... Um, it, it really does move alongside, like, you know, toddlers taking their first steps. 
admirable risk taking. It's it would be painful, you know. And then you move to where what 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 risk taking is happening at thirty three? What's the what's an appropriate analogy to a toddler or to a baby taking its first steps and a thirty three year old? Like what would be pound for pound the, a similar amount of risk taking? Yeah, and 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 why? And, and what I hope comes out of our conversation is like, why would you even want to be doing that? Because and all of this has always been fringe. It's always been fringe because that's where we can do this work, right? In Costa Rica, no one was asking for uh, for an alternative to the education system, right? We we didn't we didn't start the studio in in an environment where people are saying. I'm just not satisfied with this education system. We need an alternative to it. Um, Seeing and what we'll share in different stories and anecdotes is that life we're going to talk about cultural regeneration life happens when those risks are have a space within which they can operate and kind of sprout back a different experience of life takes place when risk is given space yeah yeah well said I want to drill in a little bit to um, the risk taking that you and I both watched each other kind of move through in the development of, of Originative and Studio in Costa Rica, and then the endeavors beyond that. The point that you brought up about that crit crack was not as much risk taking for you as maybe drawing. Um, right. And whereas in some interns, crit crack is like this dreaded moment. <laughs> Right. And um, And let me frame that a little bit where you're confronted by, you know, this task that says, okay, um, you know, once or twice a week, we're going to be gathering and singing songs with children. Therefore, you should, if you don't already uh, know an instrument, learn to play an instrument and learn, you know, all of these songs on that instrument and learn how to perform them well with your children. By the way, Children are the most gracious audience you'll ever have. So have fun learning in front of them, which is, you know, the equivalent of be a complete buffoon and play your terrible C chords that may sound like a C if you can tune your guitar before you go in with the children. But begin (laughs) that. Um, You know, so of course, huge risk at that point. And like, let me frame the parallel with me, like being, being, substantially colorblind and with very limited time with you know my my paintbrush in paint and going into an art class like what propelled me the most was wanting to understand what some of our interns were feeling with the Crick Crack program and trying to scope out well what's the dimension that I'm just as you know like tender and fragile um, and, and what it would take to really get good at something that 
I abandoned probably when I was seven or eight years old as my life took on sports or other these things, you know, and, and, and when we talk about a certified mentorship program in holistic development, you want to begin to grow the capacity to identify those areas in which you are deficient and right. to then take action towards them and say, okay, I'm, I'm going to learn that. And it's, in that in that notion that risk has a space um, you want to you don't know how to paint and you want to learn how to paint and you want to do it in front of children and parents you want that part of your early childhood education you know nearsightedness to be revealed <laughs> ah, there you go there's some risk <laughs> you know, when my drawings are up next to my children and they're like like nobody can really figure out where's the teacher's drawing, you know, like stuff like that. I want to throw out a question that I've heard in response to that and say, so, so someone says, well, Carl, I'm, I'm a linguistic learner, not, not a spatial learner. And so that's not how I learn. Right. Cause you, cause you get those, right. Yeah. <laughs> The older the person, the more that they've learned these certain ways of talking themselves out of learning, you know, the more you have to confront that, which is the beauty of early childhood education. They're just ready for it all. Right. But, so what, what, but even what's, at, what's your question here? Well, my question is when we're not dealing with early childhood, because in early, child, in early childhood, we all accept that there's this that it's a very generalist framework that we're learning all things at the same time. But when we get to high school, we have students that have been trained now in an arsenal of crutches and excuses on why they shouldn't have to do certain something in a certain way, because it's not how they personally come to that material, right? Like, I need to have this particular music going on all the time so that I can concentrate. Um, so I'm sorry if this music is distracting to all of the other students, but that's what I need because I am an audio learner. I learn things um, mostly through my ears. And so if I'm going to be in, a, in, a, in an environment with a bunch of other people, I have to have that for me. And you have to, to respect that. Or I'm a kinesthetic learner. How are you going to take this reading assignment? I don't read well. Um, I don't, I don't, I'm not a textual learner. I learn from, from doing. And this is really important. You're addressing the Howard Gardner's uh, theory of multiple intelligence, which has been extremely useful in creating a platform of dialogue on different approaches to learning. But what we've seen is that it's also become, as you're expressing in these examples, a largely misunderstood conception of what the theory of multiple intelligence actually is, which was not to stratify specialization and homogenization of learning styles but rather to recognize fortes within a scope which is the human development as a whole is always meant to be developed 
all across the board of all intelligences and being able to recognize strengths. Those certainly exist, but not at the expense of a non-holistic development, which would be to, you know, fully focus on that one aspect that you're, that you innately manifest, you know, at different stages throughout your life and becomes a fortitude. The, the beauty in the younger years is that you're developing them all. Um, but to take the language of multiple intelligence as a way of identifying the way that you learn and what you will be good at versus that strength and that multiple intelligence being the catapult for all of the others that need to develop as well. There, there's, a, there's a faulty premise in how Gardner's theory of multiple intelligence is being understood and processed right because it's just this quick sort of easy way in which educators are tending to identify certain things and be able to talk about certain learners that they have in their classrooms and set up certain dynamic dynamics but that are essentially compartmentalizing and limiting the holistic scope of development that should we should always be undertaking by saying you will be and you will learn in a musical way. And so I think it's created a a false practice um, that unfortunately now is becoming the the rhetoric of teenagers that have learned that thing as a sort of defense mechanism of how they will learn and how they will not learn and what they will learn and what they will not learn. And and that's just very far from what should have been happening. Right, 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 right. With with teenagers, and it's like I would have done the same thing if I would have had these tools with which to not do certain work that I didn't deem was uh, in my best use of time in, in my limited capacities as a teenager. I, I wouldn't have done it if I if I could have said, "Hey, I, I don't want to write that essay. I would rather just speak my essay." In fact, we we in in high school we had a teacher who. Um, she allowed us to to submit responses to books and stuff through video format. And, uh, and I was like, wow. are you kidding me? I was like, this is great. And so we would just take a video camera out into the woods or at one point on the roof of the school where we lit a little fire on the roof of the school and did our video project, our, our video response to a book um, and and then submitted that. And the whole ruse was like, the teacher doesn't know that this fire is actually on the roof of the school. Right? And, uh, and, and so the whole time, the whole premise was to show a video of us having a fire on the roof of the school, doing some, some BS talk about a book and then laughing in class hysterically. Like we could not stop laughing because the teacher's just like, Oh, that's nice. You know, this is nice. Oh, campfire. Oh, you know, like, <laughs> is and I'm not saying I don't like I value that memory. Um, it was not super instructive as a as as critical feedback to the particular reading material. I can tell you that it was like, hey, you're going to let me cheese out on this. I will take that. <laughs> I will take yeah. that that exit, and I'm not going to do the work. Um, yeah, and, I mean, the, yeah. The, go ahead. Now I'm just saying, I see how 
crystallized these responses are from from high school students where they're just like it's second nature it's like nope this is what i will do this is what i won't do and the whole system of from like a mental health and emotional and social development standpoint as it has blended with special education in in, in the united states and work towards inclusion uh, which is which is great like um has also created just a field of crutches and it's like choose the crutch that best fits your need in this moment and then that's well, they, your response for for not doing the work they're mirroring the specialization and the compartmentalization of education by having a specialized math teacher or a specialized language arts teacher or right. a specialized art teacher that and so again going back into why we have felt so strongly about a certified mentorship program in holistic lifestyle and regenerative practice you're explaining something that we don't often have to deal with when we're working with teenagers because they may come to us and be mused by, you know, a certain musical approach that I may have or something. But then when they understand that I am engaged in the mathematics of the music that I play, and I am equally connected to the natural world. And so the risk taking that took place in me as a mentor, being able to develop the multiple intelligences within myself as a commitment towards that, the teenage that can smell out bullshit here, you know, left and right, Likewise, can also respect when someone is asking of them a holistic approach to their development because they're demonstrating holistic approach to livelihood. Uh -huh. And so now it takes years to be able to get to that point. But if I'm going to tackle your question a little bit, which is, you know, what happens in these situations where people are saying, oh, I'm a linguistic learner or whatnot. Well, if the person that they're interacting with, the, the educator is a linguistic learner, then they're just having the argument at the level, the low level, that the argument needs to happen. And by us identifying that that's something I'd like to avoid when, you know, even as a father, but as we're working with high school and teenagers, I want them to be able to see somebody that has a holistic commitment towards lifelong learning. Mm -hmm. And when, and, and teenagers on and value that, and it, it, it doesn't happen overnight, um, but over time they're just lured into what is a truly romantic approach to life, which is not right. just doing right. what you're good at, but just being fully alive. And, and so, you know, you're presenting a case, uh, a, a, a case that I know happens, but I also know, okay, if you don't want to be in that situation and you want to confront that situation, it's not about what they need to learn. 
it's about being willing to take the next 10 years to shift your approach as a mentor and boom, there's the gateway for risk taking. Like, okay, this thing yeah. is happening. Well, are you ready to go down this, this pathway so that 10 years from now, um, you know, the, a, a different group of kids at that point um, won't feel like coming and contending um, a certain thing because what you have to show is your own life experience, which has nothing to do with the narrative that they may have learned somewhere else. Right. But I have to consider through this whole thing, the relationship that you brought up before about guarantees. And I jotted down the word insurance, right? Like insurance in our culture, we have a culture of insurance uh -huh. and insurance is designed to mitigate risk. Right. Uh -huh. And when you have an entire culture that's built on mitigating risk, well, you know, hundreds of years of, of that type of behavior can allow your culture to arrive at a place where they're doing pretty well. Like, wow, we, we, um, we have very hermetic environments, uh, both emotionally and, and physically in the West. But I think it's harder for, for us to sort of metacognitively consider what a culture of insurance really means for us. The idea that your university degree is insurance for a career, that those conversations that happen the institutional guidelines for mitigating risk that happen at 33, where it's like, well, do you have a whole life insurance plan or a term life insurance plan? Are you saving for retirement? Right? Like, how are you building your nest egg? <laughs> we have all these terms for what, for what that means, for how you're going to be safe in case something bad happens. And I, I remember the way that my father had taught me about insurance uh, when I was a teenager and I was like, why do we have to pay for insurance to drive a car? Blah, 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 right? And he said, well, like he said, it's like this insurance is a gamble, right? And when you pay an insurance company, you're saying I'm betting, I'm placing my bets that I will get in an accident. <laughs> and the insurance company is saying, we're betting that you won't, <laughs> right? And so you're, yeah. you're placing a bet against yourself, right? Wow. And, and I think this is an interesting way to look at a university degree. A university degree in a specialization is placing a bet against yourself to do other things to uh -huh. be bigger than what that degree says that you are. And, wow. and I think a lot of people may feel how uh, myopic that, that really is. Um, maybe it's difficult to articulate it. Maybe they're really great at articulating it. And <clears throat> we still have these mythopoetic kernels within us that send us out wandering through our 20s to try to find ourselves in the world and start to ask bigger questions and take some risk and some life factors so that you have something 
worthwhile in your narrative. I think that's a great fear of the modern West is that you don't have a life worth living, right? When we measure our lives as stories, it's like, well, how good is this book? (laughs) Like, is this book worth reading? Would someone else want to read about my life? Or am I passive? Am I passively going through this life, always trying to make sure that those big challenges don't ever affect me, that I, that I never have a big challenge, right? Because I've successfully navigated and mitigated that risk. There is this institutional sort of very acute representation of um, deficiencies in what I think is sort of a clever rascal, rapscallion sort of way that it comes off as, well, here is my Disability. Here's my disability. I'm going to tell you all of my disabilities so that you don't hold me accountable to needing to develop in that area, right? Like, so I have, a, I, have a, <clears throat> I have an out. So rather than saying, well, everyone is coming at this from a different, you know, um, collection of gifts, which we'll say on, on you know, we, we will say as a sort of nicety, as a sort of Hallmark card um, introduction to everything. It's like, well, everybody has, everybody has a gift. Everybody has a gift to give. But we, we sort of trump that by saying, everybody now has their, the, this, this other layer, this shadow layer of disabilities. And if we can label the disability, we can, get some insurance on not being held accountable to that, right? Mm-hmm. So if it's dyslexia or if it's dyspraxia or something like that, it's like, well, let's identify this so that we don't have to hold each other accountable to developing those areas that are harder to develop in us. Uh, and, and maybe can never be developed as much as someone else, but who cares? <laughs> Even from a religious perspective, religious religion, as it moved away from mysticism, um, got into a point where it wanted everything to be concrete, dogmatized, succinct, easily digestible, and of a population controlling nature. And so, but you know, going way back before any of that or any current mystic traditions are all about the unknown, the chance, the chaos, living within that uncertainty and having um, steadfastness, right? And so if we get into like reasons for risk, uh, a person that risk creates uncertainty, um, it creates trust of an existential realm. And therefore, when, I don't know, global things like COVID happen, there's a steadfastness that doesn't even need to be recurred to. It's okay. This is yet another one of those unpredicted things because my entire life lives within um, a a substantial degree of unpredictability. And so one more little thing happening there, you know, which is major Mm -hmm. in another person's life is not really major. And, And I've felt that a lot in your way of speaking about, 
what's going on and, and one can measure themselves in terms of how the general population, be it neighbor or, you know, city-wise, nation-wise, global-wise, has responded to certain things. And I think it traces back in a very interesting way to having experienced risk again and again and sought it out um, because of its, you know, brotherhood with unpredictability. That's a good point. Um, I hadn't considered that until you mentioned it, but it is a, how do I qualify this? I take a lot of my cues from exactly from this place of being so heavily invested in both uh, a relationship with the divine as far as synchronicity goes, as far as ancient archetypes go and the mythopoetics that's associated with it. Um, but also invested in nature to the point of having a heavy and deep and consistently perpetual relationship with nature. Risk is constantly sort of being fed back by a language with all of those things that is not actually even possible to convey within the contemporary um, polemics and polar conversation that happens within this country. So I'm easily pigeonholed by some as being ultra conservative because uh, that's not because the word of, I was expecting. I know okay. you weren't expecting it. I was like eccentric or you know, progressive. <laughs> okay. Um, and, and, uh, but on the other hand, by ultra conservatives, I'm seen as a new ager from the religious conservatives hmm. and as a sort of like hyper um, tree hugger hippie. <laughs> Uh, by by the others, <laughs> but, it's but, like, but tree, tree tree hugging hippies would never consider you one of them, and that's well, what, you know you know not not to get knee deep into stereotypes, but you know a lot of knee deep, a lot of tree hugging hippies are like obsessed with mask wearing, right? Like so they they don't really <laughs> understand a, a whole lot of deeper <laughs> facets of nature, but, or or they've rejected. Some and and even on a very very simplistic level of like the difference between uh, um, naturalism and like Darwinism versus uh, intelligent design, right. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, I'm wholeheartedly in both of those camps, <laughs> and yet both sides of that like see me as in opposition to them. Right. It's great, actually. Yeah. It's, I love the cognitive dissonance that it provides. Um, it, it doesn't it make requires, our job any easier, but. <laughs> right. It, it requires that which the mythopoetic movement, which we'll be talking more about um, in the rest of the remainder of this podcast, um, it, in terms of that dance with life. Mm. When, yeah, when I loved what yeah. you were saying earlier. I loved that, that just the that you qualified that by being so into the ecstatic living into right. loving life ecstatically. Right. So, and yeah, go ahead. And, and, and it's only through, through risk that, that ecstasy 
can be experienced because even even in where, mm. like we're most familiar with perhaps uh, the the sensation of ecstasy within an intimate relationship with a closer other you know and so that that's our relationship not not often an ecstatic relationship with nature an ecstatic relationship with poetry or an ecstatic relationship with the divine i mean right. mostly it's a bland relationship with the divine that is um, sympathetic and consoling at best in times of pain. And then, you know, anyway, I don't want to go down that place, but to be in ecstasy with the divine or to be in ecstasy with poetry or with nature or with, you know, education with children is not something that's often being talked about. Um, however, drawing it back to where, where we may feel a sensation or something that mirrors what ecstasy is, is in that intimacy with our with our partner, and it, but it's it's in that intimacy that there's absolute vulnerability and risk. It's why ecstasy, mm. you know, at a prostitution level or so on and so forth, um, it it does it's not the same just because of the the sexual act. It's this other shadow spectrum which risk doesn't look pretty, you know to many eyes, especially in the beginning. And, and, right. and that vulnerability is not fun. And yet in the, the moment of copulation, um, it's, it's understood that without that, we would not be having this and, it, and it's really savored. And so if we take that, that whole analogy into, well, how can we experience ecstasy if we're unwilling to experience risk um, in the other realms of our life as we pursue holistic experience of life. Right. I think you haven't said this, but I'm getting that there's even a misuse of the word ecstasy in relation to partners and lovers. Yes. Because yes. in the way that you're using it here, you're really talking about vulnerability that transcends the corporeal, right? right? And so much of how ecstasy is talked about is solely this right. it, it's really like corporeal thing yeah like corporal um climax it's almost being used in the place of a climactic moment and ecstasy is not this pinnacle right it's it's this widespread kind of fog that you just dance in as they, as they say and it's really tricky to put into words which is why so much of the great poetry is a forever attempt at that. Mm. Yeah, now, you're, you are an excellent student of both Rumi and Hafez. Is there an ecstatic poem that comes to mind to really underscore this idea that draws in the mythopoetics, it draws in the idea of the lover, but it's in Bly's words, Bly, Bly points out that the Sufis had a different term for the divine. They, they used the word beloved so that it was purposely not confusing, but simultaneously mixing as like multiple layers of trans, uh, transparent layers of it is the lover and it's also the divine and the divine is the first lover. These sort of things. Is there a poem that just jumps to your mind when you, when you're contemplating this? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think it's the whole mystic poetic movement um, so well 
now made available to us, you know, through through the work maybe of uh, Coleman Barks um, and the work that he did with Rumi and what Bly has done with Hafez um, and others. Like, so we're living in a time where we we have access and there's no linguistic barrier to. And there's a subtle one if we want to be precise, but right. but we have access now to it, um, not only in great translations of the work, but also in its availability online and bookstores and whatnot. So. My my point is that there's that's a body of work, right? And as and as Bly was cutting in at the time that he did, what he was saying is like, what's all this nonsense that's being written and emitted from you know the academic pulpits um, in classrooms of poetry <laughs> around the nation? And he says, what? Where is this other stuff? And you know, thirty forty years later, you and I come to all of that as if it's almost like, you know, like what Coleman Barks did with Rumi when Bly told him to unleash this material was he really made it like bestseller <laughs> stuff. That's like, like gift all over Facebook. It's, and so we live now in that sea of the mystic and the mythopoetic movement because of the risk that was taken by Mead, Bly, and all those others that we've admired for so long, right? So getting to your question of like a poem um, that, that, that speaks towards so much of all of this is, is that one that uh, we often say as we gather in a circle um, around a fire, around a table, but when the intention of that moment is anything but the bullshit of most of the talk going around. And so um, Hafez says, and, and it reminds me so much of not the poetry of Pablo Neruda, because he doesn't ever quite get there for as great of the work that he did, but he never quite touches on yeah. that ecstatic um, relationship with that, which is far beyond just the corporal lover that he loved and was inspired mm -hmm. by so much. It's just so limited. Once you get into it, you can savor his words, you can savor his notion of poetry and you have to call it for what it is it's missing large components mm -hmm. um anywho uh, love to hear bly on that because he was also he spoke fondly of 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 neruda but anyway um neruda i remember when i was visiting his different homes in chile which is a great thing to do um because they're well preserved and there's great stories about each nook but <laughs> one of his hideaways was called the Matilde House, if I'm not mistaken. And it's in pretty much downtown uh, Santiago, Santiago, which is Bella Vista, um, if I'm not mistaken. Um, right on the foothills of Cerro San Cristobal, because it was a hideaway where he'd go with his lover. And anyway, in this place, he had the dining room set up in a hallway. Right. And so what he would do was the, the, the politics of the times in Chile when, um, you know, um, Neruda was doing so much of his work and then had to flee, you know, we're heated and say, oh, we're going to make it real heated when we have dinner here. So I'm going to put the table here and people are going to be so close. It's going to be like they're, they can feel each other's spit as they ravage these different polar political perspectives because I'm going to invite people from both sides of the party to kind of hash it out here at my dinner table that's in the hallway. <laughs> So um, we, we, we need that to happen again during COVID because that would really piss some people off. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no six feet. Oh, 
So anyway, this poem of Hafez kind of reminds me of this moment where everyone's gathered and a quietness takes over the room and he says, friends, I don't want to be the only one at this table offering all the food. I, I want you to put food in my bowl the way that I do. The kind of food that feeds the soul. And that way, we can invite a hell of a lot more friends. Yeah. Right, there's something in there that, that even in that translation of, like, if we're going to talk about risk, it's risky to invite a spiritual, um, intimate conversation and yet throw in a hell of a lot more. And, you know, and, mm. and, and, and it's, but he's so grounded in his poetry on the taverns and of being the down and out. He's so grounded on, I want to continue to live close to my beloved's lips while realizing that I'm like Johnny Cash in the blood, the spit, the mud, and the beer. Right. That's, that's somewhere there is where I want to live. And, you know, there's a lot of risk in attempting to convey that. Yeah. Especially when in the conversations that would naturally sort of arise when working with kids of any age, right? Like I mean, we, we said this, um, this earlier, it's like now that we've developed a relationship and we understand a little bit about your gifts and a little bit about your deficiencies, how do we really start to push the envelope of that and leverage your gifts to to raise up that that uh, relationship with whatever those deficiencies may be, so that maybe they are always deficiencies, but you develop a relationship with it just like you do the stranger that knocks on your door, the guest. I think mm. Rumi's uh, poem about the guest who shows up and says, "Don't turn away anybody." Yeah, sort of. No, I, 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 I love <laughs> I, that was that was another one that I was actually thinking of, um, in where he's referring to our ourselves, our own souls, as a guest house, right? A guest house for all the plethora of of emotions that we may feel. And I remember what, what I don't think I've ever told you, but you know, so much of my spiritual upbringing, although there's reference to Jesus being angry in the temple when, when, you know, everybody had turned it into a marketplace. At times it's said that rage and zeal is okay, but the the overtone of Christianity, modern Christianity is like, be peaceful. And, Mm -hmm. um, and so when, 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 when I was in, you know, like intimate moments, be it with a job or a spouse or as a father in which I was feeling rage and it seemed to be a, a justified rage. I had very little to go on in terms of, you know, having a foundation that said that was okay. And certainly a conversation with you helped that. But then when we come to a poem like Rumi's Guest House, which says, 
welcome everything welcome everything into your life as if it's a guest house you know the laughter of you the glass of wine with your friends it's just like live in that ecstasy and then he also says and invite some malice and some resent and some remorse and, and, and that's the moment where Rumi like intentionally riskfully tries to like lose you know 80% of his audience <laughs> out the door. We were loving that other part, but come on now. The way of love is peace. There's no room for rage. Fuck you. Here's a poem. Invite them all. They're all guests. Don't make any or any of them lord of this house. They're guests. They come in and they come and go. And when you really contemplate on that, then you realize there's principles of the Tao and the river and the flowing water all present, which right. is why the mystic poetic movement is at a different realm than what is mostly, you know, being kind of celebrated. And this goes back to a few podcasts ago about where we were talking about faux classic literature being read in school. Well, faux classic poetry being, you know, celebrated. And, and it's not to disqualify what it is, as I was saying with Neruda. Of course, there's brilliant stuff. And I go to it all the time. We could have that conversation. But to be able to understand that that is within the secular realm of our modern society, which, you know, Blake despised just as much as I do and, and far much more. Yeah, it, it is interesting as, as an aside, as, as a person who <clears throat> went through a, a bachelor's program in poetry and a, an MFA with, uh, with Naropa, um, Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics, no teacher at any time ever brought forth any of the ecstatic poets. Um, it was uh, late, late, late in my, in my MFA when another student actually has had a side conversation with me and said, hey, in just reading your work, I think you'd really dig this. <laughs> I think you'd really dig Rumi if you, have, if you don't know anything about him. And I had, of course, I'd heard of Rumi. My brother-in-law is from Iran and had mentioned both Rumi and Hafez. And, and so it was around, but I think it's really interesting that it's so seemingly, seemingly purposely avoided um, in, in the context of, of where academia is at. So your point is a good one. I want to try to bring it back to the idea of the certified mentorship program, because so much of how, what we started in talking about was like, well, the risk taking that we notice or don't notice in a person coming to the certified mentorship program. Well, well why is it necessary? Um, right. Why is Why are we advocating risk here? Why? And this goes back even a little bit to something that we really haven't addressed yet in these podcasts, but that really frames the reason, one of the reasons for why we would advocate risk, which is we see even today, thankfully, in youth, um, this natural wanting to you know, explore the world, 
be it through sports that they that they're involved in, music, travel, but what's often taking place in that pristine moment of human development that that's full as they would say of the red warrior energy is that there are no longer mentors or very few mentors around like an iron john that would know how to tend to that energy allow it a vessel within which to take on shape without fully molding it right, right. into what the mentor wants and so that risk what we were talking about before is that that risk nature which is natural in us goes out and sees a world that primarily is not taking risk and let alone knows how to court the younger generation into a deeper ecstatic relationship with risk because right. we're teachers and educators and not mentors that are continuously living in the dance of risk. So what happens is that as a society, as a world, we lose the flavor of our potential and we end up in a homogenized existence of what it means to live and we're not truly living. We're, we're existing and having certain climactic moments that are nice, um, but as a large, what our human capacity has from a holistic lens is so far out of the periphery even of our scope. Um, and it has to start with our generation that should be the mentoring generation of the up and coming generation modeling risk taking. Why risk taking? Because if Bly hadn't done what he did framing it within just one example of risk taking in later years, because we can talk about it in early childhood and teenagers and youth traveling. But when you're in, when you've completed the academic journey and you're established and you throw all of that to hell and you live the rest of your poetic life under extreme scrutiny and obstruct, what, what's that word? when they ostracize, ostracize, holding, they ostracize holding Caulfield for having left the, the fencing equipment and they couldn't do their fence. I love that. Um, and, and well, J.D. Salinger was also a risk taker in, in, in his approach, you know, and so on and so forth. But what that risk that, why would we advocate that risk? Because without that risk, there is nothing new that can come. And as we're right in the middle of huge change in the world. People talk about going back, going, going into unforeseen territories can only be carried out by those who have a ongoing relationship with risk that did not terminate when they signed up for college or for a job. And, and it permeates, you know, just family life, you know, like, um, you know, we can talk about examples um, just of our own lives. Um, mm -hmm. there, there's risk when, when you come to a village at the other side of the world full of farmers that are successful and have been for generations on farming in this area. And you decide that you're going to have a different approach to gardening 
Um, <laughs> not because it comes from a place of expertise, but it becomes from a place of learning and wanting not just to do what's being done, but to bring in other things that you've heard about um, and, and bring them into that place and begin a garden that doesn't necessarily look like the monocultural um, mm-hmm. plantations of potatoes that are all around us. And your backyard garden that, that we can also put in um, you know, some, some, some tabs there for people to check out, you know, that's, there's risk there. Uh, none of your neighbor's backyards look like that mayhem that you have. That it's really in the eye of the beholder that, and in the eye of the one who understands that as the aesthetics of your garden, for example, because mm-hmm. they are not the, what we've been trained is beautiful. And, and yet it's far beyond the beauty of, you know, a landscaped, you know, project of a couple of bushes and some sage on the front of a Colorado, you know, front porch. Right. Yeah, the the risk to go against the flow is interestingly mythologized into, into a lot of the idea of being, you know, an American. And, hmm. and oddly, right. it, okay. now it's you're... like we have systematically very very um cleverly extracted yeah yeah we're like oh this doesn't belong here this doesn't belong here i like that idea of weeded it out because weed is an uh, the weeds in our garden are another thing that we talk a lot about and it has to be qualified for this podcast that for those maybe listening for the first time when we talk about weeds we're talking about that beauty which goes uncelebrated and therefore is cast away um, like some shape rather than being the weed that allows itself to become the food on our table as are the other identifiable plants. So ironically, um, risk in a society such as the United States has been weeded out where that weed needs to be understood that weed of risk we could say needs to be rather understood and allowed to be recognized for what it is and its place and its need in today's society in the United States for the United States to evolve um, into what needs to be the next chapter of quality of life we 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 had some good attempts um and and it took us down substantial pathways of progress uh several years ago but now that has met its barriers and it's going to be the risk takers that say okay we got to shift the direction and and that's happening i mean there there's there, there's beautiful things happening in which many are having a return towards growing their own food and figuring out how in a modern fast paced society with the cars that we have and the cell phones that we have and whatnot, being able to grow our own food and be sustainable and regenerative. And that, that is risk practice. That's why we would advocate that because why would you want to do that? Because once you're eating your own food, 
you will begin to experience one of the many fumes of the ecstatic living. And that is quality of life. Yes, you can, in a mass love way, go to the supermarket and put some lettuce in your bag and take it home and put it on your plate. But it's not an ecstatic experience of eating. No. It's a flavorless, uh, unless you put some salt, you know, celery salt, like my dad sends me to China from time to time. You put some celery salt on it, it can do it. But there's, there's something at a whole other dimension when as a family, you can pick something from your own garden. It does something powerful in our children and it does something powerful in our homes when we bring in food and it only happens through risking to do something that we didn't see do. I didn't, I didn't grow up in that way and it's not my parents' fault, but it is a decision to recognize this is insane that my lettuce is coming from some other part of the country or some other part of the world in the case of like bananas or something mm-hmm. and, and shift into figuring out because that that's where the whole self learner aspect comes in, figuring out how it's going to come from the hands of my family. Yeah, that's, that's a, it's an interesting qualification to bring it back home to diet and, and seeing the act of, growing your own food as, as a rebellious act. And, and then the, the layers of rebellion within that, it's like, well, do I just eradicate any plant that I don't have a relationship with because I don't know. And if I don't know, it's better to be fearful and attack something that, that, that I fear, or do we go through the work of, of reestablishing those relationships? When you mentioned weeds, an interesting aspect of, of weeds is that so much of the reason that they're successful, overly successful, is because of a past ancestral relationship with this plant. Hmm. A lot of these plants are here because our ancestors brought them. They brought them very much, uh, for the most part, intentionally because they were the plants that they had developed a relationship with to create food and medicine. And so when we talk about that disconnection, the risk of refraining from segregating and then um, sort of just qualifying any plant like, like people do with racism, any person that doesn't look like me, I'm going to qualify as something lesser. Any plant that I don't have a relationship with, I'm going to qualify as a weed if it's super abundant and super successful. Um, mythopoetically we're actually by reinvesting in the knowledge and and the development of a relationship with that plant we're actually massaging something we're taking a an ancestral mythopoetic risk by doing that um as well as a cultural modern risk because i have you know 30 neighbors on on my block that are not so happy about the dandelions growing in my front yard. Right. (laughs) Right. Um, And that type of risk, I think learning to accept the risk and the criticism that comes with being putting yourself in that place of saying, I'm going to do this in a different way. And I know that 
I'm going to get a lot of kickback, may even lose my job over it. But if that's the case, the practice that we're working with is so important that it's okay. The loss of that temporary thing is, is okay. And we'll actually create, and this is the harder, the harder thing to sort of talk about or convince people of, is that in the space that's created, when you lose something that is routine, when you lose something that is predictable, then there is a space that opens up for magic to happen, for a relationship to unfold that wasn't pre-planned, that wasn't dictated or prescribed by some sort of pre-existing dogma. And that's the challenge that we have when we begin a conversation with, uh, with a person interested in the certified mentorship program is, is how do you convince them that the risk, that the bigger the risk that they take in moving towards anything that they really want, the more space for the, the divine will be there to fill mm. and interact with. Yeah. Um, because you can't qualify, you can't guarantee what anything will look like. And the whole idea right. is that you can't, that's the right. point. <laughs> that's, right. that's why that space is magical is because no one else is in control of it, but it doesn't mean that we're passive. Right. And, and that, and, that, uh, that aspect of being passive, there's another Hafez poem that I want to share. Um, this one I'll read. And it, it might be a good way to bring this podcast to an end. I will say that because of the risk of this podcast um, being <laughs> of such a new nature for us to talk about, I mean, that we were set off to talk about, and it'll come up soon uh, to be a plant. And as we, we realized, man, there's a lot to say about risk. Um, let's see how that goes. Um, I would love to hear from some of our listeners what it's triggering, what kind of questions, what kind of thoughts, what kind of reflections yeah. so that we can then come back and kind of touch it in a, you know, not in our kind of way, but in how it's interacting and weaving into other people's thoughts on, you know, maybe we're out to lunch and um, someone wants to come in <laughs> and, and have that conversation. Uh, that is exciting. Maybe it triggers someone's anecdotes on how this is truly valid and and they've seen it in these other places but i would love to love to hear um that we've got some great listeners that have joined the the origins podcast what's up thread we're having great conversations throughout the week remember that if you want to sign up just let us know you can contact us uh, through our website www.originative.org or any of the other social media platforms out there but um, this is a Hafez poem. It's called, From the Large Jug, Drink. From the large jug, drink the wine of unity, so that from your heart you can wash away the futility of life's grief. But like this large jug, still keep the heart expansive. Why would you want to keep the heart captive like an unopened bottle of wine? With your mouth full of wine, you are selfless and will never boast 
of your own abilities again. Be like the <laughs> humble stone at your feet rather than striving to be like a sublime cloud. The more you mix colors of deceit, the more colorless your ragged, wet coat will get. Connect the heart to the wine so that it has body. Then cut off the neck of hypocrisy and piety of this new man. Be like Hephaz. Get up and make an effort. Don't lie around like a bum. He who throws himself at the beloved's feet is like a workhorse and will be rewarded with boundless pastures and eternal rest. <laughs> it, it, it's that poem just kind of like weaves through our entire wow. conversation. Yeah. Um, and, and it's that throwing ourselves at the beloved's feet like I was mentioning in the beginning of the cast with the words of my father that come from the Christian tradition of God's taking care of the birds is going to take care of you as well. Mm -hmm. You know, Hafez is saying, throw yourself at the beloved's feet and you will be rewarded with boundless pastures and eternal rest. So in all of this, there's a certain irony to the ones who know how to live in risk and the right kind of risk, which we can get into sure. you know, a whole other hour, is that that does open up, like you were saying, the possibilities for us, our, our needs and our greater possibility for living ecstatically to take place. Without that risk, without that throwing of ourselves, we'll also probably be okay. But, but why be okay? When, when, when there's an ecstatic possibility for which we were, were created, we were created to live ecstatically, then why not pursue that? And that can only be pursued through risk. Yes, man, I love that. Um, and with that, there is a small group of risk takers that, uh, that have developed a community taking that risk among a community of risk takers is its own bounty and doesn't make the trials necessarily easier but it could offer could offer a lot of support with that we will end this podcast this week I love the conversation I love the poems as Carl mentioned visit us on our website www.originative.org contact us through that if you'd like to be added to the WhatsApp thread, ongoing weekly conversation about all of this material and more, uh, where we really get into a dialogue back and forth with, with uh, several of our listeners. Uh, with that, thank you for joining us, and um, we'll see you next time. Be well. <laughs>